Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are semantic threat researchers John DiMaggio and Candid West. In this week's podcast, we'll be talking about a new piece of semantic research on a previously unknown cyber espionage group known as Goalmaker. We'll also be hearing about how a murder victim's Fitbit data helped police identify and charge a suspect. And we'll be discussing a data breach at Navionics, which exposed user data belonging to the company. But first, we've talked a lot about it this, on this podcast about the recent upsurge in crypto jacking, which is shorthand for hijacking computers and using them to mine cryptocurrencies, either using malware or surreptitiously running scripts on websites that victims visit. This boom in crypto jacking has been driven by a lar- to a large degree by a rapid rise in the value of cryptocurrencies. What we've talked less about is that alongside this rise in crypto jacking, there's been a parallel increase in plain old-fashioned theft of cryptocurrencies that can involve stealing usernames and passwords in order to empty cryptocurrency wallets or exploiting vulnerabilities in order to redirect funds to attackers. We had another case of it this week when SpankChain, the rather seedily named cryptocurrency designed for use by the adult entertainment industry, admitted that it had lost $35,000 worth of Ethereum to attackers who had exploited a smart contract bug. In a blog titled, uh, We Got Spanked, indicating that they may have lost their money, but they haven't lost their sense of humor, SpankChain says that the attack occurred on Saturday. Around $9,300 worth of Ethereum belonged to its customers, uh, but the remainder belonged to SpankChain itself. The company promised to reimburse its users for their stolen funds. How did the attack happen? Well, according to SpankChain, the attack exploited what's known as a re-entrancy bug. This occurs when an attacker is able to repeatedly call a function in a smart contract before the previous function calls finished executing. And this enables attackers to repeatedly withdraw cryptocurrency before the contract realizes there's actually no balance left. Uh, SpankChain went on to concede that prior to the attack, it had opted not to undergo a security audit on cost grounds, a move that it now seems to regret. Uh, They said we were quoted $30,000 to $50,000 for security audits, but taking into account both perception value and the opportunity cost of the time spent reacting to the hack, it probably would have been worth it, they said. So it just goes to show that uh, skimping on cybersecurity can uh, leave you out of pocket and uh, lead to some kind of potential embarrassment and reputation damage. Anyway, moving on to uh, more weighty matters, uh, we had a new piece of research uh, published this week at Semantic on a group called Gallmaker, and we're fortunate to have John DiMaggio here with us, who was the principal researcher on this project. Uh, welcome to the podcast, John. It's nice to have you back again. Uh, can you tell us who are Gallmaker? Yeah, so... Uh... Gallmaker is a, a, a new group uh, that we identified. Uh, essentially, we identified activity recently. Um, it was it was once again uh, a common thread where we're seeing uh, legitimate tools being used uh, in the to take part in a larger compromise. Um, so basically, what we found was that this this Gallmaker group was actually. Uh, conducting an attack, and they were their entire attack chain. They were able to compromise victims um, to steal data without actually using malware. 
Okay, so this this is kind of the culmination of this trend of, of living off the land, of not using malware, instead using legitimate tools. Um, how exactly have they been performing their attacks if they're not relying on malware at all? What, what steps are, are they taking? Well, it's actually really interesting uh, what they're doing, because uh, while not very sophisticated, it's it's actually been very effective uh, from what we can see from their their targeting. Uh, what they're doing is uh, they're they're using uh, Word documents, Microsoft uh, Office Word documents, uh, to send. Uh, lures that are themed uh, with diplomatic and, and military topics, which would be interesting to uh, their target base. And what happens is when the user goes and opens the attachment, instead of dropping malware or, or executing something malicious, it takes advantage of a, of a legitimate protocol and uses it in a manner that it wasn't intended. Specifically, it takes advantage of the Microsoft Office Dynamic Data Exchange Protocol. Uh, high level, that's a protocol that's used by Microsoft uh, Word to kind of communicate with different components of the operating systems, uh, of the operating system as well as other Office applications. What what happens though when when they open these attachments that are sent from the gallmaker attacker, um, it, it it takes advantage of DDE protocol and it uses a uh, open source um, PowerShell library called Rex PowerShell that allows them to run scripts uh, in the background. Once these scripts are run, a reverse TCP connection uh, is executed uh, and that connects back using a publicly available tool called Metasploit, which is a tool that's uh, primarily designed for, for pen testers. And this reverse TCP shell now gives the attacker remote access to the victim machine. From there, what we see is various PowerShell commands that are being run. Uh, they dump uh, a, a program, a, a legitimate, another legitimate program called um, uh, WinZip, uh, which is just an archive program to uh, compress and, and archive various uh, documents on the operating system. Then they collect what they're looking for um, and they exfiltrate that out. So all of this, this entire attack chain is done by using a protocol in a manner that it wasn't intended to be used. Um, and it's allowing them to actually, like I said, to, to go through this entire attack chain without ever using a, a malicious payload, which is not something that we're used to seeing. Um, so they're using all living off the land tools, they're using PowerShell to run scripts, publicly available tools uh, such as Metaterpreter, uh, Metasplay Metaterpreter, and like I said, Rex PowerShell, which are all publicly available uh, and items that you may see in legitimate networks. Granted, Metasplay you probably wouldn't see, but it is something that's a legitimate tool for pen testers. So all in all, it was a very interesting case uh, that we discovered. Yeah, I mean, as you say, like none of them are particularly exotic, but I guess what's uh, really interesting about these attacks is they managed to daisy chain all of these tools together to kind of create an end-to-end -end attack, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, so I, I gather you've identified uh, a couple of victims. I know we can't say exactly who they are, but what, what type of organizations are, are uh, Goalmaker going after? So they're going pretty much, the, the main targets are, are diplomats um, and military-based defense contractors. So um, we saw various embassies being targeted across the world um, in specific, the, the embassies were all, all from a specific region of the world, but across seven different countries, as well as 
um, some targeting in the Middle East of uh, some military and defense contractors. Um, so it was uh, definitely a, a diplomatic and military-themed campaign, uh, and all of the lore documents sort of matched that as well. So like I said, it was it was very interesting to see that from um, an, an a, a investigative perspective. So given the kind of targets that they have, uh, do you have any idea who these guys are, what their motives are, where they may be from? Uh, we don't we don't have attribution on this group. Um, so no, the, the short answer is no. We, we believe that their 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 goal is clearly espionage and that's based off of the targeting profile that we, we see as well as a combination of the lore documents and the theft of information that's that's not really anything that they could use for um, uh, financial gain. Uh, but we don't actually have an, an attribution to any sort of uh, specific you know, entity that's behind this group itself, except for the fact that whoever it is is interested in these specific uh, diplomatic re- uh, embassies in these various regions and, and that they are um, clearly conducting espionage. Okay. And um, if they don't use any malware, uh, I guess one of the obvious questions our, our listeners may have is how did we discover the attacks? Well, so it was it was actually interesting. We use a tool, a tool called TAA Targeted Attack Analytics, um, and that tool uh, basically identifies uh, oddities um, in, in that are that are not necessarily related to, to anything malicious. So the fact that we that the tool saw DD the DDE protocol being um, executed and then um, uh, PowerShell commands being run immediately after and a file being downloaded that sort of combination of events. Um, tr- triggered an alert, um, and then as an analyst went look, looking through those alerts, once we started to actually uh, look at the activity around that and what was happening, it was clear that it was something uh, nefarious and it was not a uh, legitimate activity. Okay. So okay. basically, you know, we, we, we're at a point where, where defenders have to actually look at, at the good traffic and the bad. We can no longer just wait for um, malicious things to pop up and say, hey, you know, this is something's bad happening. Go look at it. Now we really need to look at both a combination of anything involving um, administrative type tools or, or access and what those activities are that are taking place on your network in addition to your traditional uh, malicious activity. Okay. And um, is there anything that organizations can do to protect themselves from these kind of attacks if malware isn't involved, John? There are. Uh, well, this might sound uh, like some basic, uh, basic things. This is uh, clearly it, these are things that are not uh, taking place everywhere since the attacker was able to do this successfully for a number of months. Uh, things that organizations can do are having a, a um, multi-tiered uh, d- defenses in place, such as firewalls, uh, intrusion detection uh, systems, um, uh, and host uh, host protection, uh, antivirus type, type software. Uh, there's those type of things, as well as some of the basic concepts like software patching. There's actually a software patch uh, that came out in December that would have prevented this attack from being um, successful if it had been applied to the target's computers. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Um, but yeah, so software patching and just having the kind of dual dual home defense defenses in place in, in your organization, uh, all of those type of things would mitigate this this sort of threat. 
Um, again, using tools like, like I said, that can identify legitimate things that are happening that are sort of abnormal, like like TAA, like what, what we use to identify this. You know, it's tools such as that is also will help you to identify uh, these sort of attacks uh, and defend against them. Okay, thank you, John. Thank you. Okay, moving on to our next item, uh, which is about the uh, well-known fitness tracker Fitbit. And uh, it's another example of how uh, sometimes IoT devices uh, can turn against their owners. Uh, Kanda, do you know uh, more about this one, do you? Yeah, it's another interesting story which broke this week, uh, as you said, involving fitnet, Fitbit fitness uh, bracelet. So one of those tracker devices that you can put on your arm. And it seems like a 90-year-old man has been charged for murder of his 67-year-old uh, stepdaughter in California. And according to the report, the uh, father admits actually that he visited her just before her death, but he of course swore that when he left, she was still alive. And that usually is kind of a difficult case to prove for the police, right? But in that case, the police actually had help from the unusual witness, which is actually the Fitbit, because the woman was wearing a Fitbit tracker at the time. So the police was looking at the recorded data of the fitness tracker application, and this data apparently showed a, well, quite significant spike in the heart rate, and then followed by a slowdown till it eventually vanished, right? So they could actually pinpoint her death, and since everything has a precise timestamp, this allowed the police to do a quite good detailed time frame of the, the whole crime, which unfortunately didn't match with the description story that the father gave. So eventually this evidence actually led to the accused breaking down and now he's being charged with murder. So it's not the first time that Fitbit data has been used by the police or in court, right? I mean, we've seen stories in 2015 where recorded data was used uh, as key evidence in a sexual assault case in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's been another case, I think it was this year when the police used the tracking data to reconstruct the path of a missing person and then that could actually lead to, well, them looking at the correct timestamp in a few surveillance cameras, and they actually found the body, unfortunately, dead. So we assume, of course, that there have been a few more cases and probably even more that you haven't heard of because they haven't been reported in the news or in any of the public media. Yeah, I said in my intro there that uh, it might be another case of someone's device uh, incriminating them. But in this case, it was actually the victim of the crime whose um, device uh, provided the evidence for the police. So I guess we live in a world where we have more and more devices recording our personal data. Uh, do you think that cases like this are, are going to happen more frequently now? Yes, absolutely. And you said it could be for your own benefit, but of course it could also be incriminating yourself. Um, but it's quite obvious that with more and more of those fitness trackers and now smartwatches actually recording all, all your uh, personal things, right, this will be very popular for the police as well and for law enforcement. So a lot of this data, of course, includes stuff like heart rate, GPS location, tracking on where you are inside the building, and this can help with any crime case in most cases. So it should be obvious that law enforcement will be very interested in trying to get their hands on that data, uh, as it can definitely help solving crime cases. But on the other hand, that also means that the users should be aware that there is a trove of data there, and 
this could, of course, be held against them, depending on what they do, right? I mean, at the beginning of this year, a few cases emerged where uh, fitness apps like Strava did actually kind of leak GPS data of a lot of people, which in the end then disclosed some secret locations of some military bases. Yeah, I remember that case all right. There was, um, you could see where uh, all the military personnel were going for a run um, on uh, locations, in locations that kind of weren't really an official military base. And I remember thinking, uh, who um, uploads their run when they're uh, in a classified location? Yeah, apparently staying fitness is probably uh, higher rated uh, staying secure and kind of secret, right? But joke aside, I mean, we all know that those mistakes will be made in the future as well, right? Con- bad configurations happen. And a lot of people are probably not aware that this data could actually be used to pinpoint them, even if it doesn't recognize or kind of reveal who you are. Just having those GPS coordinates might be good enough. I mean, just on a personal note, we actually published a white paper uh, back in 2014, right? Going after the whole uh, quantified self and looking at a few fitness applications and trackers. And we did an experiment with a Bluetooth tracking device, so go off, going after the Bluetooth low energy. And we were able to track a few people during a mini marathon, but also during the city because, well, those devices, they're usually always on and they can be pinged and therefore can be tracked by various organizations. So you should always keep that in mind, specifically as soon as the data goes into cloud. Of course, all the data will be aggregated somewhere and, well, could probably uh, get attacked. But of course, I'm not against using it, right? It's it's good that people start exercising regardless as if they're on a military base or not. Um, so fitness trackers can definitely be a motivator or maybe help getting you in those 10,000 steps per day, right? At least it works for me for sure. And I guess it works the same for others. But everyone should probably be aware that all the data will be recorded and stored somewhere. So it might be that law enforcement will use it. Yeah. And uh, I suppose one tip as well is that just don't commit any crimes. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the obvious one. Yeah. Okay, uh, thanks, Candid. And um, we we talked about uh, fitness trackers and GPS uh, uh, there. And I think our next the next thing we want to discuss is kind of related because uh, it's a data breach at uh, Navionics, uh, which is a navigation software company. Am I right? Yes, exactly. It's an interesting case. Uh, so Navionics they create some. Uh, navigation charts for boats and ships and the company has been acquired recently by Garmin so it's it's quite popular for ships so you know where your ship is and kind of doing the whole navigation system right Mm -hmm. but unfortunately someone found out that actually all the data is stored in an online Mongo database and this database has been let's say not configured to the optimum so unfortunately everyone could be able to log in and see the data And this meant that the researcher actually found about 261,000 unique customer identification um, records, so including email address, name, uh, product IDs, but also the GPS locations of the actual navigation system, which probably is installed on some ship or some boat. So probably not the thing that you want to have leaked. And it's not even that it was hard to find, because in that case, the data was actually indexed by Shodan, the classical uh, IoT Google search engine, if you want. 
So they indexed it on the 9th. The researcher found it on the 10th. So good in time, but you don't really know if anyone else accessed the data and used it, right? Um, but I would say they probably still had been lucky because we've reported in the past that a lot of those online databases, including MongoDB, had been the focus of some ransomware worms as well, where they were trying to find as many online databases and then encrypt all the data or just delete the data and ask for a, uh, a money for extortion. So luckily in that case, all the information is still there. The bad side is probably it was copied and could have been used by anyone against you. So again, whenever the data is stored in some S3 bucket on Amazon or online databases, make sure that you configure it properly, that is secured, and that not uh, any, well, anyone out there that looks like it could actually access it and download it. So always safety first. Yeah, so I guess it's important to stress that uh, there wasn't any hacking or uh, malware involved in this. The, the data was just sitting there online um, and open to anybody to stumble upon, really. Yes, it, it's one of those classical cases that um, the data was sitting there and as long as nobody looks for it, it probably would have gone for even a few months. I mean, we've seen the same with uh, information from voters in the US and, and other crucial information sitting on some public uh, buckets. And it's just a matter of time that someone will stumble across it. Here, it was quite quick. to After one day of indexing, the researcher actually found it. Um, and of course, reported it, and they have have it fixed by now. So that was the good case. But yeah, no deliberate hacking involved, no malware, and still a data breach happened. Yeah, and un unlike a lot of data breaches that involve just um, personal information, this is GPS coordinates and and what have you as well. So it also um, shows the customer's actual GPS location too. Okay, uh, that's about all we have time for this week. Um, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out on your weekly dose. You can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or Medium at medium.com forward slash threat hyphen intel. If you'd like to lead, read our latest research, uh, including John's, uh, check out our blog, which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blog forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. We'll be back again next week uh, where we're planning on doing a special edition of the podcast, taking a behind the scenes look at what it's like to work as an engineer in cybersecurity. Until then, thank you and goodbye.